we do not and we should not ever tire of contemplating what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To understand that God sent his only son out of his love for humanity to come to the earth to live as one of us instead of one of the heavenly beings, to subject himself to ridicule and punishment and pain, to live as a poor person amongst other poor people, and who yet was to be lifted high and seated at the very right hand of our Creator. A Savior who suffered unbelievably. Death by crucifixion was the worst way they knew for a person to die. And Jesus made the choice to submit himself to the will of God for his life by going to the cross and paying the penalty for sin. And as a direct result of that, call those who, through faith in his name, have committed themselves to also being followers of Yahweh, of the creator God, of the one who sent Jesus. And people gather in places like this all throughout the week at different times and places, in different kinds of buildings, with different kinds of music, with different kinds of prayers, although all praying to the same person. And they gather together to celebrate who it is that they are as a community of faith. And it seems oftentimes rather naive probably for us together. We feel better after we worship. It blesses us. We worship God and we leave and feel so um, near and dear to his presence that we can go about the rest of life that week with a stronger countenance, with a firmer belief in what has been going on. And yet we are able to do that only because of the willingness of our Savior to give himself fully and completely to the act that was to serve as our salvation. So then you might ask the question, on any Sunday, and we should ask it every Sunday, we probably should ask it every morning when our eyes awaken and we are presented with a new gift of life, what would you do with me this day, Lord? How would you use me this moment in history, this moment that I'm breathing, this breath of life that you've given me, what is it that you would have me do or how is it you would have me behave as one of your children? If we were to ask such a question, I think that we might hear, much to our shock perhaps, maybe even to our dismay and certainly to making us uncomfortable, we might hear the still whisper of the Spirit as he whispers into our ear and into our hearts, be ye perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you cannot read through the Sermon on the Mount and get to chapter 5, verse 48, without those words kind of serving as a shocking prod to you, Right? And it shouldn't come as no surprise because that part, we've already read all the other stuff, you know. And so if someone comes up and slaps you on your cheek, turn the other one to him too. And if that person wants to borrow your inner clothes, give them your outer clothes until you're left standing naked before them. And if that person wants you to carry their burden a mile, 
voluntarily, cheerfully to carry it to. So that you might recognize, even in these wrongdoing people, the spark of divinity that lies in each and every person. So that you might say, despite what someone does to you, that you will function as the follower of Jesus Christ and not return evil for evil. So that you will not allow yourself to become angry and mad because of your humiliation. You will instead reject your humiliation and gladly lay it on the cross, even as our Lord Jesus did when they humiliated him and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Be ye perfect. It's one of those few verses that just needs the King James Version. Be perfect, people. That's what I want from you today. This is not a sermon on Christian perfection. That'll come later. But being perfect is not the idea of perfect in the dictionary without fault or without blemish. Being perfect in the scriptures is a biblical term and it has a distinct meaning. And with the risk of giving you the end result, it means be perfect in love, even as your heavenly father is. Our Heavenly Father loves every one of His children all the time. Not because of what they do, but rather than and despite what they do. God continues to love them. And so today we come to this passage of Scripture. And it comes as a result that in the book we're going, I'm going through, and you're following along if you've purchased a copy, is after all these signs and symbols of being emotionally intelligent, self-awareness, empathy, assertiveness, optimism, an ability to, to, to resolve and face stress in your lives, we have to ask ourselves, okay, this is what behavioral science tells us about emotional intelligence, but is there yet something more that Scripture tells those who are followers of Christ that is a necessary part of being wise about your feelings and your emotions and how they turn into actions? Is there another persona deep inside us that needs to be nurtured and gained, that behavioral science, quite frankly, perhaps does not even know how to address because it is a biblical truth and a biblical truth only that can only be lived out not by ordinary humans but by the almighty power and the unbelievable strength that the Holy Spirit gives us. So they just can't talk about it, but we can, and this author did. And I just now started on the introduction to this sermon I really would like an hour and a half. Cowboys don't play it. Three. It's happy in Austin almost. Why not stay a while, right? Love of our enemies, he notes as a sign of emotional intelligence. It would have, you have to be very intelligent emotionally to love your enemies, don't you? It's not so hard to love your grandchildren most of the time. It's not so hard to love your spouse, your brothers, your sisters most of the time. It's not so hard to love people that are your best friends most of the time. It's not so hard to love the people you go to church with except some of the time. It's not so hard to love a lot of people, but loving our enemies is not easy. It is not even the normal instinctive reaction of being human. The normal instinctive reaction is just what the children said it is. You hurt me, 
You humiliate me. You treat me mean, and I feel mad. I feel angry. I want to bop you. I want to destroy you. That's what we think. That's what we feel. Is it possible to have those bad things happen to you and not feel that way? Yes, it is. Jesus was hanging on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. It is possible, but it is not because of your feelings that you will ever achieve this idea of being emotionally intelligent because your feelings will desert you at the most critical moments. Oh, sometimes you'll be in a strong position and you'll do well, but many times they will attack you when at times when you're weak. And you will need the grace of God to survive. He gives these three examples of what is called the, the law of retaliation that was ancient in the scriptures. And even before we had the scriptures, it was in the code of Hammurabi as well. This idea that we could needed to exchange an eye for an eye. But before we get caught up in that, because quite frankly, most of the time in America, it's quoted poorly and illustrated even worse. Because back in the day that it was coined and used, it became a law of the land in tribal societies. It was not used in order for one person to get revenge, but was rather given as a gift of mercy so that revenge and justice would not be done by an individual but would rather be done by authorities who were appointed to do so. That law, that lex talionis, as they call it, was meant to be the beginnings of mercy. Because you see, in the tribal societies, if you came to my tribe and you hurt one of my tribe, then the rest of the tribe would go and wipe your tribe out if they could. You get it? One person hurts another person, and a whole tribe suffers. It's like football in junior high. It's like going to the Marine Corps. You've got somebody that can't run the time, so I'm going to punish all of you until that person makes the time. There's some logic in that, but it's just not very logical. Oh, I know it can work. You can beat people down enough to make them do what you want them to do in the Marines. But in normal life, that is not the stance that Christ took under these circumstances. Instead, this was a limitation of vengeance and a changing from revenge and vengeance to an idea of justice administered by a judge or a tribunal, not by an individual who had been wrong. There's a lot of difference in taking personal revenge and seeing justice done through a system of law and order. And he gives three Examples of how something could set off a vendetta or a blood feud, as they used to call it in those days. These are, these are for disciples who have been taken advantage of and wronged. And he tells them, according to the writer of this book, Emotional Intelligence, he tells them to do things that will reverse this dynamic from taking punishment to giving in such a way that another life might be yet transformed. Reverse the dynamic of taking to giving. Serve the offenders in order to give them opportunity for transformation and conversion. Four examples. Turn the other cheek. One of the insults of the day, especially amongst the poor in regard to the rich, was that when the powerful and the rich were disgusted with them, they would slap them in public, in order to publicly humiliate them. 
And in that day and age, because the other person represented a group of power, people could react in different ways. But what Jesus said to do was turn the other cheek. Turning the other cheek would force that person who just slapped you, perhaps in a moment of anger, to have to make a choice. Do I slap this person again? And I think if Jesus had been asked, well, what if he slaps you on both cheeks? Do I get to hurt them then? Jesus would say, no, you don't. Just turn the other cheek again. I think that's what Jesus would say. Because you see what Jesus is saying, that by turning the other cheek, you're impressing upon them that they are human. And within them, there's a spark of divinity that should recognize and be able to discern that what they are doing is wrong. And you are willing to suffer in order that they might see that about themselves and out of their amazing darkness to see a glimmer of light and change their lives because you did not do what normally people would do. Somebody wants your part of your garments? Give them all your garments. Even that which covers you at the night, if you were a peasant, keeping you warm, the outer cloak became your blanket at night. And by law, you had to return the blankets at night because it got so cold, you couldn't even take from the guilty their blanket at night. But what he says, give it all to them. Give it all to them for the same reasons, the same purposes as you turn the other cheek. Instead of defending yourself, give of yourself. And for the person who wants to come along and make you carry their burden for a mile, as Roman soldiers often did in that day, don't just grudgingly carry their load, mumbling and grumbling the whole time, but rather joyfully take it an extra mile. That they might ask you, why would you do such a thing? And you might say, because Christ loved me and I love Christ, just like we sang a while ago. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there thinking, well, this is sure sweet-sounding sermon. You know, we ought to change the other, turn the other cheek. But in real life, that's something different, right? In real life, when somebody hurts us, when somebody does something to us that humiliates us, we want to respond in far different ways than turning the other cheek. If someone comes up and wants to borrow unlimited from us, we want to hold on to that which we claim is ours. If the beggar reaches us on a street, we want to say, well, I fed them last week. I don't need to feed them this week. Or how do I know that person is not going to do something terrible with that money? We don't want to be people who have been gifted by God and feel like we need to respond to those poor beggars. Jesus said, give to the one who begs. Jesus said, give to the one who wants to borrow. And that includes that one that you know is not going to pay it back. In fact, just assume that you want to give it to them anyway. But protect their dignity by allowing them to think they're going to pay it back when you both know they're not. You know, it's like the old saying goes, if you're going to loan money to a relative, don't count on getting it back. Right? What a sad way to look at things, but yet there's a reality there. If you have something extra that someone needs, should you not be willing to give it to them? In the simplicity of the, the days in which Jesus lived, the answer to that was yes. Should we not do it now in the same way? Building a better you has to do with 
this idea, be ye perfect. A better you, the word there in, in 548 is teleos, and it means perfect for the purpose for which you were created, for the, doing the things that you were intended to do. A perfect tool is one perfectly shaped to fit your hand so they can do exactly what you are meant to do with that tool. For human beings, you know what the perfect tool is? To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To be made into his image so that we think like Jesus, act like Jesus. In fact, so that we act like a human should really act. When we don't turn the other cheek and slap them back, we're not acting humanly. We're acting like someone who's less than fully human. A fully human person looks like Jesus. Do you know what that means? The whole point of salvation is to return us to our original intended estate to the best of our ability to release ourselves to be transformed. That is an incredible thing for Jesus to say to us and incredibly difficult to do. Jesus obviously didn't know his family well or didn't have my family members because some of them make it hard to loan them anything, right? Some of them make it hard to turn the other cheek to you. Makes it very difficult to respond with grace in the face of those who are humiliating you. Because you see, inside you feel the normal turmoil often, and you have to struggle with it if you're an intelligent person. If you're not an intelligent person emotionally, then you just let it explode, right? Now, if you're young and hearing this sermon, that doesn't mean that when you hear somebody acting ugly, you don't run up to them and say, you're acting stupid. The preacher said so. Don't do that. That won't be a good idea. But really when people are out of control, what are they acting like? Nobody can make you madder than your wife. Right, men? Unless you have my wife, of course. Sweet and <laughs> gentle. Loving and all the things pretty and nice, you know, with a little bit of spice. But people who are not as sweet as she sometimes can turn the other leaf in my, my life and make me think thoughts that I shouldn't think. Then I remember this silly verse that Jesus spoke, be perfect just like your Father in heaven is perfect. And I kind of shudder. The standard is so high. The calling so real, the opportunities to be like Jesus so plentiful. You want to know why the church of Jesus Christ is struggling today? Because we don't act much like Jesus, just like Gandhi said. We don't really act like Jesus. Oftentimes, not as groups and not as individuals. And it's to our shame and to the shame of heaven every time we don't. Romans 5, 8 says, Jesus loved so much that he gave his life for sinners. And oftentimes, aren't sinners our enemies in our minds? I remember a time when I got humiliated. I was a young boy man. I was a youth in high school. I was a junior in high school. 
I was the starting point guard for Farmersville High, an honor I've been working for for years, hour after hour, day after day, living in the country, me and the basketball go, bounce, bounce, shoot, shoot. I won no tell how many world championships out there, just me and against my shadows. I shot so many goals, I, I had a coordination then, I don't, I don't even remember now, where I could actually make it go in the direction it was supposed to go. And I made the team as a freshman, and so I worked my way up and played a lot more as a sophomore. And then when it came, came to start my junior year, the unthinkable happened, the coach left. And we got a new coach. And the new coach wanted to teach an entirely different brand of basketball. He was an up-tempo coach. You don't know what that meant, but we used to bring the ball down, set up every time, pass it around a certain number of times before anybody thought about taking a shot. It was a very disciplined approach to playing basketball, and we had won with it. So the new guy comes in, and he says, we're going to run. Get the ball and run right now. And, of course, I'm the point guard. I'm supposed to be pushing it up the court just like you see him do it on TV now. But, see, they hadn't done it on TV that much then, so I just thought the guy was nuts. Now, there was a part of me that wanted to do it because I had lived with that ball in my hand for so long. I could do things with it, I knew, but I was so timid. I know that's hard to believe at that point that I didn't want to be hogging the ball or taking the glory or the limelight even at that point because I was afraid, what if you miss? What are you going to do? After one particularly painful game, he kept pulling all the starters out and putting in the second team because we wouldn't play the way he wanted us to play. And we were so resistant, we just weren't going to do it. And then after one terribly bad game, we came back to the gym. After the game was over, he set us down on the, on the bench in our home gym, having traveled away. And he turned to me and said in front of all the rest of the basketball team, you lost this game for us tonight. <laughs> nice guy, right? And I just sat there, of course. Became enraged, of course. Because I knew what I had done on the basketball court, and I hadn't lost any game. But in his mind, because I hadn't done what he'd been telling me to do, I was killing the team. All I knew is you just humiliated me in front of the team. So I walked out at the end of the meeting, and I took everything out of my locker. And the biggest goal I'd had for most of my life, I threw it back and said, I'm done with this. It felt so good to say that, to retaliate to how he had hurt me. And then I went to see them play the next game without a point guard because there really wasn't another one. They got beat by a team that we easily could have beaten had they had a point guard. And I knew I'd let the team down out of my anger. So I had to go back and crawl to the coach. If you've never lived in a small town, you don't know what crawling to the coach is unless you lived in our generation. Because, buddy, they could really lay it on you, and he did. When I came back in, there was a new sign, winners never quit and quitters never win. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Make me grovel. So I came and told him I wanted to come back on the team. He talked a little while and said, the only way you can come back is you've got to apologize to the team for what you did. Okay. You know how hard it is to apologize to 14 other young men who are all snickering while you're doing it? All they wanted me to do is come back on the team. But in front of the coach, who was very serious, I had to do what I did. He was also my chemistry teacher that year. <laughs> Only C I ever made in high school. Actually, in my life, in, before, before college. But I did. I groveled. 
and I did something else. For the first time in my life, I knew what hate meant. I'd never hated anybody, haven't hated anybody since, but I hated the shadow that man cast because he humiliated me. Did I get even in chemistry class? Oh, yeah. Did I make plans with seniors on what we could do to him? Oh, yeah. Did we carry them out? Oh, yeah. Did he send one of the seniors back to, to the office for being out of touch? She was a doctor's daughter in a small town, straight-A student. Yeah. And then she came back down laughing. And then he stormed out, the coach, and went to the office and then he came back not laughing. Oh, did I say that the principal was a former basketball coach? Oh, yeah. It was years later, years later in the process of my Christian faith that I finally had to look in the mirror and say, I've really only hated one human in my life, but I've hated that person with a passion, and that does not belong in my heart. And I had to ask God to forgive me for that man. I had to pray for his future wherever he was. I never saw him again, thank God. But I did have to forgive him. Even though he semi-destroyed two of what should have been the most fun years of my life, he destroyed them, and my improper response to what he's trying to tell me destroyed it too. It'd be many years before I really realized that. I'll say that to say this. People are hurt on a daily basis. The author says this, whenever you enter into a congregation, there are people sitting around you who have been humiliated by life, not able to find a job, being fired unfairly from a job they're in, having to ask for things from people because they don't have ability to feed their family. When you come to church, you're going to be sitting beside somebody who's been bullied at youth, bullied at school, never having their worth recognized, condemned, shamed, and rejected. The same feelings that every 14 out of 15 mass murderers display. They too have been rejected by society in their own heads and sometimes in reality. They too have felt unloved. They too have felt humiliated by their world. And they too have become enraged. And they too took out their rage on others. Not with words, but with guns. Now that's one extreme. A lot lesser extreme is the people sitting around you in church who have been hurt by what they presume to be their enemies. And they come to church looking for a kind of spiritual intelligence, emotional intelligence that will help them love their enemies. I know what I'm saying to you right now. You're thinking, well, I cannot love that person. You know, every now and then I say something that brings you up short, so let me say it again today. If you cannot forgive that person, don't be trying to snuggle up close to Jesus. Because you receive forgiveness in the same way that you meted out. You have to forgive if you're a Christian. I'm not saying you can do it in 30 seconds, but you have to do it. And you need to be careful about how you act when you feel anger inside you. So that you act intelligently upon those feelings. Loving your enemies is a high standard to set for any human being. And it's a high one in the scriptures. I know that when I think about that, I know that many people would just say, well, I'll do it, but I can't do it now. 
I had a woman who talked to me about it every week in Bible study for weeks after weeks after weeks. She could not forgive the, the woman who had divorced her son. And she had such an anger and a hatred about it that it was destroying her. Years later, I still don't know if she's been able to release that anger. But if she hadn't, it's still eating away inside her. So no, I'm not kidding. We're called to practice agape. It is a kind of love that is an act of the will and the heart, but not simply of the feelings. There are four words in Greek that talk about love, and agape is a unique one. It's one that loves with an invincible regard for the goodwill of the other person, even your enemy. You will not hate them no matter what they do. You are set on loving them no matter what they do or don't do. You will not allow your spirit to be broken down by someone else's sin and drag you down to their level where you exchange evil for evil. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it difficult in the church? Church? It might even be difficult today. It might be more difficult tomorrow. Because you see, as human beings, we disagree. And as human beings who have natural responses that we're not guarded against, we say things and we hurt people. And once we hurt people by saying things or disregarding their worth or their ideas or their thoughts about the church, then we set in action, a chain reaction that's hard to reverse. And then verse 548 comes again. If I'm seeking the highest good for everyone, I'm loving my enemies. Then we must ask the question, who are our enemies? What makes a person our enemy? I've already talked about extreme examples. I've talked about things in the congregation that can cause people to be angry, to have humiliation, to experience it, feeling rejected, feeling slighted, being demeaned. You say, well, how does that happen in the church? You ever been part of a Sunday school class party that had an unofficial Sunday school class party, but you weren't invited? You ever been in a church where you sought to be in a small group, but nobody would take you in because you were new and you were different, and it would mess up their group? You ever come into church by yourself and sit down and nobody speak to you and get up and leave an hour, hour and a half later, and nobody spoke to you or noticed you? Ever felt like you were nothing in a youth group because you were never called on to ask a question? Or somehow you were not treated on the same equal level as every other youth? You ever been part of a children's game in which you never won in a sport or a contest? Nobody ever rigged the deck? I always used to rig the deck in, in high school when I was working with youth. You said, what do you mean? I took, I took the most athletic people and put them with the least athletic people so they couldn't win. And after it was over, I asked them how they felt. And then I told them to remember it because the day will come when you'll be a loser. Athletics only goes so far, and then real life comes. And everybody's going to experience what it means to lose. I know I'm preaching a long time, and I've really skipped a lot of stuff, which bothers me. What is the cure for this disease that hurts people, humiliates them? A strong, 
sense of community. Treating all with equal respect, even those with whom you disagree. Embrace the people who are isolated in your midst. For whatever reason, they're isolated. Teach forgiveness and humility to everyone. Acknowledge everyone's worth, every child's worth. Refuse to be an enemy yourself. That's a great place to start. Just don't allow yourself to be an enemy of someone else, regardless of what they do. Here's a one for you. How to cure it is pray for the one that you think is your enemy. And as you pray for that enemy, pretty soon you'll find yourself loving that enemy despite what they do, not because of what they do, but despite what they do. Pretty soon, if you begin to do all those things, you will find yourself acting like Jesus, and you will find yourself forgiving everyone who harms you or hurts you. Now, I'm going to close with this caution because I know people get carried away. Loving our enemies is not just a high ideal that is impossible in life. It is possible by the grace of God And the help of God's Holy Spirit. Number two, loving your enemies is not and does not include ignoring the threat posed by an enemy. We're not talking about that. It's a whole other subject. Loving your enemies does not include ignoring the threat that they pose to you. It does not mean liking your enemy. I'm so glad that's in there in the book. Because it's a lot easier for me to love some people than to really like them. And it's the same way when I used to sit where you sit. Sometimes it was much easier to love a pastor than to like the pastor. So I would much rather you love me than like me. Liking is good, but love is something deeper. It requires more from us. Loving your enemy, that doesn't say you have to like somebody and hang out with them all the time. It does mean you have to be committed to what is best for their life according to God. That means it's not just a soft, mushy-gushy kind of love either. I'm committed to what's best for my grandchildren. And what does that mean? It means sometimes, especially when their parents aren't there and they're acting out, I get to do what I do best. (laughs) Not get them a snicker, although I do that pretty well too. But I get to look in their eyes and say, you're not going to behave that way here. Amazing thing happens. That's love. Now, does it make them mad? Not my grandchildren, because they're perfect. But it might make your grandchildren mad, but they'll get over it. It does not mean just being nice. You've got to be committed to doing whatever you can to help transform your enemy. And just being nice won't cut it. You've got to be creative about it. And lastly... It does not mean that loving your enemy means accepting what they do. Because a lot of times your enemy's actions are not Christian. But that doesn't mean we have a right to reject them. It's a long topic. It's a sobering topic. If you're not sobered by that idea of loving your enemy, then you haven't thought about it very long. I could do something tacky now as a way to end this sermon. I could just ask everyone to raise their hand that has an enemy that you know of. 
That would really be tacky, wouldn't it? I would be causing many of you to break the Ten Commandments at that point. Because some of you would probably say, I don't have an enemy in the world. I'm not mad at anybody. Nobody's mad at me. Well, they probably are, aren't they? There may be somebody, however, that's been mad at you for 20 years. And neither one of the two of you have been able to do anything to take that first step in love to make the enemy your friend. Unforgiveness will kill you. Next week, the last week in this sermon series before we talk about congregational emotional intelligence, the sermon's about forgiveness. We're going to talk about it. We're going to share about it. We're going to think about how we can be a forgiving people because that's what you have to do with your enemy right off the bat is to look at them as God looks at them, somebody who can be transformed. Father God, I thank you for this congregation and for their attempts to love their enemy, for their willingness to love each other when they're at odds with one another, for their willingness to be the people of God, for their willingness to seek a goal of being perfect in love, even as Jesus was when he walked this earth. You created us for that purpose. You've made us for that reason. You've enabled us through the power of your spirit to attain to that reality, and you are calling us forward to not be like everyone else, but to be shining examples of love in a world going crazy. May we be those examples, I pray today. And I pray for it for all of us in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here today and you need the church or you need a Savior, we offer you Christ and we offer you this fellowship as we stand and sing our closing song.